Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Welcome everyone. It's 19th of April, 2022, and we're sitting here in the Visegrad Inside office. I'm Miles Maftian, editorial director, and I'm here with Camille Jaramczyk. Hi, Camille. Hi, Miles. So let's start off with some more positive news. Um, this time specifically our initiative with the Future of Ukraine Fellowship. What we've done is we've narrowed down the selection process to 10 pre-selected fellows. Of those 10, we're able to fund three really outstanding Ukrainian thought leaders. We'd like to introduce those three now. Um, Vitaly Portnikov, Christine Karelska, and Bogdan Bernatskie. We are extremely excited to welcome them to the team and we'll actually be introducing them more on a one-on-one -on -one basis in our next podcast. But for now, we just kind of wanted to give an overall update on the numbers that we have. We've right now raised more than 14,000 euros out of our 20,000 euro goal. And the job is not yet done. So we want to continue to raise more money beyond our goal to actually fund the other fellows that we've pre-selected. And what we've done is we, we've put together their bios, uh, which you can find in a link on the description at the Visual Insight page. Thank you again to all of those more than 100 donors. I think we're up to 107 now uh, who have given their money to, to this great cause. Okay, moving on to the broader EU level. Next week, we know that France heads to the polls again for the runoff election between Macron and Le Pen. And on the same day, Slovenia will also be holding its parliamentary elections. So we've discussed this a bit on our last podcast that it's going to be incredibly interesting to see how this sort of plays out for the region and what it actually will mean for the region. But in other news today, we have this newly established inquiry committee on the use of Pegasus and equivalent spyware. So it's actually going to start its work now, this, this inquiry committee. The committee is essentially going to consider alleged breaches of EU law in the use of spyware by not only Hungary and Poland, but these will be some of the Visegrad countries that will be looked into a, a bit more because, as we know, Pegasus was an incredibly big story here in Poland. Yeah, uh, still is. Uh, still is. Still there, continues uh, there to are be. Co committees in Poland currently in the parliament and in the Senate right. that are looking into this as well. Right. Of course, bigger news is uh, shadowing, but they're still going on. Of course. So you have that both on the EU level and individually, domestically. So, but as we know, the, the main story this week, which continues to be the main story uh, over the past month and a half, of course, is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What we know right now, um, kind of looking more transatlantic, is that a, it was just recently announced that a group of Democrats from the US will actually visit uh, Poland and Germany in, on a nine-day trip, essentially, to, to kind of rally to, to show some support for Ukraine. And we know that today, actually, Polish Prime Minister uh, Mateusz Morawiecki will, will visit Lviv in a show of support for Ukraine and Zelensky as the Russian invasion right now moves into a, a very alarming second phase. 
Camille, maybe you want to tell uh, our, our listeners a bit about what the second phase actually entails. Yes. Yeah, so um, so what we uh, saw actually yesterday in Poland, um, Poland is uh, quite a Catholic country and it was Easter Monday. Right. Um, uh, so uh, when everybody was having off... Uh, we uh, found out that uh, Lviv was bombed, base uh, uh, again by the by the Russians uh, uh, with uh, missile strikes. Right. Um, culturally and geographically, this is quite significant for Poles. So it is quite uh, uh, significant that our prime minister, right after these uh, attacks, is going to the city um, uh, for um, to open huma- uh, humanitarian uh, humanitarian. Uh, um, uh, help basically. channels in yeah. this way, yeah, yeah, the, to um, which they say that the government has uh, the government of Poland is spearheaded. Which, if if they did, then kudos to them. Um, uh, yes, uh, but the, why, what we also heard yesterday um, uh, was that Zelensky basically saying that uh, the second offensive has begun. And for those who are uh, are not aware, this is basically since the initial attack into Kiev. Uh, failed. Um, the Russians were for, uh, first forced out. The troops have been regrouping in the east uh, on the Russian side uh, to basically launch another offensive uh, into more limited goals. Basically what a lot of analysts were suspecting from the beginning, which is uh, an offensive to take the rest of uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk regions uh, in, the, in the east, uh, these two separatist republics. We knew that it was good and bad news at that time. The good news being that Kiev obviously wasn't taken over, but yeah. the bad news being that an offensive would be around the corner. Yes, exactly. Zelensky actually called it the uh, is calling it the Battle of Donbas, right. you know, uh, which will when uh, which will be decided. Uh, what uh, we we will uh, see what 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 comes out. It will be decided on the battlefield. Right. Um, the we it's uh, no 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 uh, secret we're all hoping that ukraine is able to defend and ma- uh, defend itself right. um and um we're ho- hoping uh for the best from them but uh, but another news um with the collective defense of all our countries in the v4 and in the region is uh nato which um, when it comes to the news that finland and sweden are joining nato russia has actually threatened them uh unclear exactly what it's going to be um, uh, or if these threats will uh, come to anything, but uh, from these the- threats have essentially been there since the first days of the invasion themselves. Yeah, and now as we discussed last week, with the intensified talks in Finland and Sweden, this is where we stand right now. Exactly, but the Baltics, the Baltic countries, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, did show strong support for the accession of Finland and Sweden into NATO. Right. Because of the fact that um, that uh, it will actually help their security situation, uh, because um, uh, before beforehand, it uh, if you look at the geography, without Finland and Sweden and NATO, the Baltics are sort of uh, the weakest link mm-hmm. uh, in in NATO security, especially because of the existence of the uh, Suvalsky Gap, uh, mm-hmm. which is that little piece of Kaliningrad. Right. Um, it was always thought that uh, if there were a Russian invasion of NATO, they would t- close that gap and then take over the Baltics. And this has always been what NATO themselves have been reported on as well. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so but with Finland and Sweden now on the northern side, uh, with Denmark, Sweden, oh, if it, it, it's, it's simple geography. Uh, right. Yes, yes. So it's clear why the Baltics uh, are accepting, but of course, uh, out of principle as well. 
Um, but another thing, another uh, thing that's going on on the eastern side, which is uh, Belarus, um, they actually opened up a month-long visa-free access for citizens of Latvia and uh, Lithuania uh, to go to Belarus. But uh, officials in Latvia and Lithuania have warned that uh, that uh, it's Belarus is still not safe; that you should not go to Belarus, even if you can uh, with visa-free access. And that uh, the Lithuanians also reported that uh, their citizens that go to Belarus or to Russia have been, been uh, there have been cases of them being recruited into spy networks or into spy, um, uh, into uh, spy, uh, yeah, alliances and so Alli- forth. Yeah, yeah. yeah, espionage against their right. their their countries, but because of EU membership, it's not just Lithuania and Latvia. Right, they have access to the entirety of the EU. So. Uh, just um, development on that side on that side of the border as well. And um, when we, uh, as the managing editor, of course, uh, I'm uh, uh, planning the next week, uh, next week's or this week's publications. Something that's coming out tomorrow, which I'm looking very much forward to, is a piece by Jerzy Onuch, which uh, was the head of the, uh, which was the director of the Polish Institute in Kiev. Uh, the Polish Institute is our sort of, uh, it's our uh, Goethe Institute. Right. Yes. Uh, the Basically, Poland's nationally funded uh, Institute of Culture, mm-hmm. uh, where you can learn the Polish language mm-hmm. and where you can uh, take uh, courses um, and in general spreading Polish culture. Well, at the start of the war, it, something quite uh, quite. Uh, unfair in my opinion happened which was the uh, they uh, sacked all of the Ukrainian staff in Kiev and uh, the ex uh, the ex head of the Polish Institute in Kiev Jerzy Onuch has uh, written a piece basically on what he thinks of what he thinks of the issue and what uh, what is uh, what what uh, what it looks like basically right. and what has been the government response as well right so, and this is interesting from the standpoint of now we can see that their diplomatic missions and so forth are starting to open up once again. Exactly. Right. Um, and it's interesting to see the other side of this because oftentimes what we read and what we see um, m- may be a bit different in terms of what actually was happening on the ground. And there are many times that the cultural level of this um, does have a different um, story to to tell exactly when it comes to that. No, this is great. Thank you so much. I, and and I think in terms of this, there's a lot going on in the region. I think there was. I also wanted to highlight uh, for our listeners if if they weren't able to attend last week, we had a fantastic we had a fantastic event with uh, Olivia Lazard. Uh, she's from Carnegie Endowment, and with our own Marcin Crow fellow. Ogyan Georgiev. So they did a fantastic event on the the current state of the energy sector after the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We focused on, of course, Bulgaria, uh, as Ogyan is, is, is from there and knows quite a bit. But we also dove a lot more into the actual energy infrastructure and a lot of political mandates that we hear in terms of trying to see Europe get themselves off of Russian dependence on gas and how much of an uphill battle this will actually be. So if you're not a subscriber to our website, please go ahead and subscribe and we will have a write-up on this. 
where you'll be able to actually see what the discussion was on the event and of course for all other closed door events that we will have. Thank you very much, Camille. I think now we'll move on to the second part of our podcast where Tatiana is going to discuss potential scenarios on Albania's bid to EU membership. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to our next episode on Western Balkans. I'm Tetiana Polagrovic, uh, and I'm a EU Neighborhood Program Manager at Visegrad Insight. Today, I talk to Ledion Krisafi, researcher from Albanian Institute for International Studies. He partners with us on this project, on Western Balkans Future Project. And I wanted to talk to him today about our scenarios report in particular, but also about Albania's way to um, to EU integration. Uh, Ledian, welcome. Thank you for the invitation. My first question um, actually will be connected to the scenarios that I just mentioned. Uh, Visegrad Insight has recently published another report in a series of its strategic foresight publications. And so this time, these are the scenarios for Western Balkans. And the report identifies five possible scenarios that in particular evolve around further integration between Western Balkans and the EU. And I wanted to ask you, where does Albania stand in this process and which scenarios do you foresee for the country? Now, at the moment, uh, especially in the last years, Albania has, let's say, stuck in the EU integration process for different reasons. Uh, first, it was uh, because of internal Albanian problems like the justice reform, which is ongoing, and uh, the, the changes has brought in the justice system. And uh, from the European Commission uh, and from several countries, it was the idea that we have to wait to what the justice reform will uh, bring before we open negotiations. Then there was a problem of Albanian asylum seekers, especially in uh, France and Netherlands. Uh, now, in the last two years, there is a problem of the Bulgarian veto for North Macedonia because Albania and North Macedonia have been coupled together in the EU uh, integration process, which is, uh, from my point of view, it's not very logical because countries have have a lot of differences, and their EU integration path has been different in many in many levels. So at the moment, we can say that Albania's uh, integration path has has stuck uh, at the moment because of the Bulgarian veto to North Macedonia. But I think it's not only that; there are also internal problems in Albania, like uh, lack of rule of law, corruption, uh, justice system, which is still ongoing of uh, a lot of changes. Um, the administration, which is politicized in several levels. So there are two different lines of problems, let's say, for Albania, which has stuck the, the process. Concerning the scenarios, I think the war in Ukraine has changed something in this perspective. Without the war in Ukraine, I, I could have said that the scenario is the same as now this stacking of the process, uh, the idea of uh, the hope of opening negotiations. But with the war in Ukraine, something has changed. And maybe we can go with the first scenario, which is the first hand, if I uh, remember the title correctly. Uh, because uh, in, in the last, uh, let's say, two months almost of the war in Ukraine, uh, uh, we have seen uh, the perspective of Ukraine becoming part of EU after the war, uh, in a, let's say in a very fast or quick uh, process. This could, could change a lot also the process in the Balkans because, uh, uh, let's say, the risk from, uh, from Russia or from China in, uh, in, in another level could uh, quicken, let's say, the, the process a lot. But as far as I know at the moment, this is only, let's say, hypothetical scenario because from the European Commission we have not seen any uh, willingness, let's say, to 
to open negotiations or to uh, quicken the process. Uh, Albanian Prime Minister Rama was in uh, Berlin a few days ago, and uh, even though Germany for the let's say for the hundredth time in the last two years uh, expressed its support for uh, Albania's integration path and open negotiations, but there was no discussion or no talking about quickening this uh, this process because of the war in Ukraine and the challenges it has brought. So it's a very hypothetical uh, scenario, but the most realistic scenario at the moment is this stacking of the scenario and uh, uh, waiting, let's say, for opening the negotiations. I see. Uh, you mentioned about some hardship that Albania faces on its on its integration path. But if you were to summarize, like again, what are the main challenges and are they of rather internal or external nature? The main challenges for Albania are internal. There is no external uh, challenge for Albania uh, compared with the other Balkan countries, for example, with Serbia and Kosovo, Montenegro has some internal problems, Bosnia has its problems, North Macedonia has different problems, so Albania doesn't have external problems in this way. All Albania's problems are internal. The main one uh, is the, it's corruption. It has been the main problem in the last 30 years and nothing has changed, let's say, in the last nine years now of this, uh, the new socialist government. And uh, what the European Commission wants from the new justice system is to, uh, let's say, because of the enormous corruption in the last uh, 30 years, someone, let's, to put it simply, should go to the jail. Someone very high position should go to the jail. This hasn't happened in Albania uh, because uh, the justice system before... Uh, starting of the uh, mini revolution, which has ha- which has happened until now, has been uh, completely politicized. One of the uh, main achievements of the new justice system, which hasn't yet, uh, let's say, finished uh, constructing, is to decentralize this uh, the system in order to for politics to have as little as possible influence on it. So corruption and uh, uh, is is the main internal problem for Albania. The second one is the the lack of rule of law, which is connected also with uh, with the justice system. Uh, but uh, in this case, uh, the, the idea is that in many EU uh, European Commission reports, uh, the the laws which have passed and the new uh, justice institution which has been created have been shown as, let's say, fulfilling the, the criteria. But this is not correct because what is needed in the end is for uh, high-level politicians and high-level officials which uh, are uh, connected with, with corruption, so they should, should be punished, they should go to, to jail. This is a test, let's say, for Albania, which would open up the EU integration path. And this has been repeated uh, many times from, uh, from Germany and from other countries that we want, let's say, concrete results from the justice reform. Uh, the new institutions, the new laws are not sufficient for uh, for the European Union to to, to see this uh, criteria as fulfilled. What is needed for Albania are, let's say, uh, concrete results. Something has started to move in this uh, uh, in this direction because we have uh, uh, several uh, former minister of the interior was condemned for with three and a half uh, years of. Uh, uh, prison and uh, some others are currently arrested for several uh, corruption cases, but this is still the beginning. What is needed in the end are, let's say, high levels. Uh, what the U- U.S. embassy in Tirana has been uh, saying for the last uh, four or five years, uh, they need a big fish 
in the end to catch the big fish because uh, you can't have, let's say, uh, very, very high levels of corruption for 30 years and nobody going to, to the jail. So this is a litmus test for Albania. Concrete results from the justice reform would totally change the situation of Albania's integration path. If we don't achieve that, I think we will continue in the same process with uh, new laws, new institutions, but uh, uh, nothing substantial changing. I see. Thank you, Ladian. Um, my next question is connected to um, sort of cooperation between Visegrad group countries and Western Balkans. I mean, we know that Visegrad countries are deemed to be a very good example for the Western Balkan uh, countries in the context of EU integration. Uh, they also uh, are very much involved in assisting Balkan, uh, Western Balkans on their way to EU. And I, um, my question is, how is this cooperation and assistance reflected in Albania? On, on which level does it take place? Uh, until now, I think it has mostly been political. What you said about the support for EU integration, for giving an example of what Albania should do, what uh, countries of Visegrad group like Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic have done better than uh, uh, and could serve an example for Albania and the other countries in the in the region to in their EU integration path. Because I think Visegrad group has been, especially Poland, has been maybe the most successful uh, country in the integration uh, process. Uh, but uh, especially in the economic level and trade level until now has been very, very minimal. Trade between Albania and Visegrad uh, countries is one of the lowest for, for Albania. And uh, uh, as far as I know, in the last statistics, very little has changed in this, uh, in this direction. Uh, what has changed, which is a very new thing for Albania, is, uh, let's say, coming of Hungarian capital. In, in the country. The Hungarian companies have entered the Albanian market uh, in, uh, from, from the big door, let's say. They have bought several uh, IT companies, uh, communication companies, uh, one or two banks. So it's, Hungary has become one of the main investors in Albania at the moment. Uh, from the Visegrad countries, I think uh, from Slovakia and Czech Republic, there is little trade economic cooperation it's only on the political level but even this is not uh, very dynamic let's say compared with the cooperation Albania has with, with Italy for example which is dynamic in, in every level and it's uh, it's visible everywhere uh, with the Visegrad countries this is not let's say it's not visible even though it's there on the political level it's not visible Hungary is, is a different uh, case even though Albania's relations with, uh, with Hungary at the moment political relations are let's say normal nothing exceptional uh, the Hungarian uh, investments in, in Albania in the last uh, one year and a half has been have been very surprising, to say the, the truth, because uh, most of the investments in Albania come from Italy, from Netherlands, Switzerland, Turkey, etc. So this was a new new entry. What can change in this direction is for Visegrad group countries to become, let's say, more visible, to give much more their example, their experience, uh, because. We come from from same uh, past. We were part of the same communist bloc, and we had the same problems. Uh, in 1990-1991, I think all of us were almost on the same level, but uh, not all of us have changed or have uh, progressed in the same uh, in the same way. The countries of Visegrad Group have have uh, done it much much better. And this is what the example, the experience that Visegrad countries could give to to Albania and the countries in the region. What they did which was so successful, especially Poland and Czech Republic, uh, because uh, uh, what, what, especially this is the, the main point, what they did 
uh, exactly to, to be so successful. This could be much more visible, which is not. Let's say Poland, Hungary, and the others, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, are not visible in Albania. And, and compared with Italy, with Greece, and uh, with the other countries, which uh, give the support for EU integration of Albania, much more uh, vocal, much more visible. Uh, also, another point which could change is the is the economic uh, relationship because especially with Poland in, in 2019 almost half a million Poles came to Albania for vacations which is uh, one it was one of the highest numbers of foreign tourists in Albania this is not the same compared with economic uh, relations or trade relations I've done a study I think uh, two or three years ago about this point about economic relations between Albania and Poland and there were so so small, so few that it it was difficult to uh, let's say to to fill in the study which was uh, which was done. So this is one of the things which could be could be done. Also, Albania uh, is let's say is big destination from for tourists from Czech Republic, and not so much from Slovakia and Hungary. But this uh, uh, this potential for tourism, let's say in a certain way, I think Albania is. It's known as a, at, at the moment as a tourist destination in uh, in Poland. Uh, I know a lot of Poles have started to buy uh, apartments, homes in the Albania Riviera. So this, let's say, tourist potential, this visit, visibility potential could be increased to uh, to much more economic trade relations, even political relations. So this is the main main point to to launch, let's say, another level of uh, of relations. Thank you, Ladion. Thank you very much for this very interesting conversation. I I really enjoyed it. Thank you also. I wanted to mention also that this this episode of uh, Western Balkan podcast is supported by International Visegrad Fund. And I would also like to encourage our listeners to check our five scenarios uh, for Western Balkans report that is available on our uh, webpage, visegradinsight.eu. Thank you very much. Thank you, Judith. Bye. Bye-bye.